That is Bruce Wayne's grandfather, Mrs. Cooper? His great-grandfather. I understand he was tapped for skull and bones. Tapped for it? Sir, he found his skull and bones. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 5th day of July, 2009. I'd like to welcome all of my listeners to the Corbett Report podcast and invite them all to check into the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that we've created in the past, and our ongoing documentary series, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from MediaMonarchy.com, June 29th, 2009. Obama administration shuts down 9-11 families' lawsuit. The Obama administration has effectively ended the efforts of families of victims of the September 11th attacks to bring lawsuits against members of the Saudi royal family for financial links to the conspiracy. The Supreme Court today ruled that it will not allow any lawsuits to go ahead, just a few weeks after the government filed a court brief asking that the case be quashed. The court, in an order Monday, is leaving in place the ruling of a federal appeals court that the country and the princes are protected by sovereign immunity, which generally means that foreign countries can't be sued in American courts, reports the Associated Press. Today's second real news story comes from cbc.ca. Electronic snooping bill, a data grab, privacy advocates. A new federal bill that gives police easier access to Canadians' electronic communications and activities would widen police powers without good reason, privacy advocates say. This bill is a Trojan horse to expand police powers and essentially allow for a data grab, Michael Vaughn, policy director of the B.C. Civil Liberties Association, said Friday. The new bill, introduced Thursday by Public Safety Minister Peter Van Loan, would require communications on electronic devices and networks to be interceptable by police and would allow police to obtain personal information about Internet users without a warrant. A second federal bill that gives police additional investigative powers over high-tech communications and activities was also tabled Thursday. For example, it allows police to get authorization to track a criminal suspect using his cell phone 
or to obtain routing information for his electronic communications. The government said the proposed legislation is necessary to ensure police have the tools to catch up to those using new technologies to communicate and commit crimes. Our third real news story comes from cnews.canoe.ca, June 30, 2009. BC carbon tax to jump on Canada Day. Scott Robertson was filling up his girlfriend's Toyota Corolla when he realized he'd saved himself some money buying gasoline on Tuesday, the day before British Columbia's controversial carbon tax will mark its first anniversary with a hike in price. Unlike Robertson, most British Columbians will celebrate Canada Day by paying a little more at the pumps. The tax will increase 50% on the national holiday, adding a little over a penny to the price of a litre of gas. The tax was introduced last July 1st, originally adding 2.4 cents per litre on gas and other fossil fuels. The B.C. government introduced Canada's first escalating carbon tax on fossil fuels, including gasoline, as part of its commitment to cut greenhouse gas emissions by one-third by 2020. Today's fourth real news story comes from nowpublic.com, July 1st, 2009. Former CIA head wants Osama bin Laden to attack the U.S. The former head of the CIA's unit to find Osama bin Laden is suggesting the United States should be attacked by bin Laden to bring about political change. The highly controversial remarks were made by Michael Scheuer on Fox News on Tuesday night. Michael Scheuer was head of the bin Laden unit at the CIA under Bill Clinton and G.W. Bush, and now apparently believes that the only hope the United States has is for Osama bin Laden to kill a large amount of Americans with a major weapon. The only chance we have as a country right now is for Osama bin Laden to deploy and detonate a major weapon in the United States. Today's fifth real news story comes from Infowars.com, July 1st, 2009. Murdoch CEO labels bloggers political extremists. A stinging attack by John Hartigan, the CEO of Rupert Murdoch's News Limited, labels bloggers and alternative media outlets as political extremists. Hartigan implies that bloggers should be jailed as they are in oppressive police states like China and Burma. In a speech to the National Press Club, Hartigan savagely dismissed blogs as something of such little intellectual value as to be barely discernible from massive ignorance. Bloggers don't go to jail for their work. They simply aren't held accountable like real reporters. It could be said the blogosphere is all eyeballs and no insights, barked Hartigan. Today's final real news story comes from theweek.com. Abortions and vasectomies increase. Planned Parenthood clinics are reporting big increases in the number of abortions and vasectomies because recession-battered couples feel they cannot afford another mouth to feed. They're telling us, I've already put off paying my rent, my electric bill, said Stephanie Poggy, whose organization helps women pay for abortions. They've run through all the options. You were both in Skull and Bones, the secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? 
The conspiracy theorists are going to go on. I'm sure they are. I don't know. I haven't seen the web. Number 322. <laughs> uh, first of all, he's not the nominee. And, uh, but, uh, look, I look for... Are you prepared to lose? No, I'm not going to lose. You both were members of Spell and Bones, a secret society at Yale. What does that tell us? Uh, not much, because it's a secret. <laughs> Is there a secret handshake? Is there a secret code? I wish there were something secret I could manifest. 322, a secret number? Uh, there are all kinds of secrets, Tim, but one thing is not a secret. I disagree with this president's direction that he's taking the country. We can do a better job, and I intend to do it. And we'll be watching Be Safe on the Campaign Trail. John Kerry, thanks yes, for joining us. And we'll be right back. Welcome, my friends, to episode 93 of the Corbett Report, Digging Up Skull and Bones. As I'm sure many of my listeners are aware, the preceding clip, of course, came from the 2004 presidential election, in which, of course, Skull and Bones member George W. Bush was pitted against Skull and Bones member John Kerry. So what is Skull and Bones? Well, the simple answer to that is that it's a secret society at Yale, which each year taps 15 senior students to join its ranks, meaning that at any time there are only about 600 to 800 living members of the organization in the world. So the fact that we had a presidential election in which it was a bonesman against a bonesman might perhaps be indicative of the influence and power that this group wields. As I say, this is all quite mainstream information, and I'm sure many of my listeners are familiar with it. But in order to get a little bit more background and understanding about Skull and Bones, what it is and how it operates, let's turn to one of the premier researchers of the group, Anthony Sutton. Anthony Sutton, of course, was a research fellow at Stanford University who was well known for his books exposing Wall Street's connections to various shady dealings in the early part of this century, including his book Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, and Wall Street and FDR. Anthony Sutton was as surprised as anyone else that his research led him to the connections between the men on Wall Street and the Soviet Union and the fascists in Germany, and he couldn't fathom why the Wall Street tycoons would want to fund extremists on both ends of the spectrum, including the Nazis and, of course, the Bolsheviks, and why they would build them up, the great enemies of the United States, in order to wage war against them. The answer started to occur to him in the early 1980s, when some documentation was anonymously sent to him about the Yale secret society Skull and Bones. He went on to write what is still perhaps the definitive book on the order, America's Secret Establishment, An Introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones, which was a long-term bestseller and continues to be so even now after Anthony Sutton's untimely death in 2002. Right now, let's listen to a clip of an interview that he conducted in the 1980s explaining the order and its significance. Please tell us about the order and how you came to discover it exists. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. The order is truly a secret society. It was founded in the United States at Yale University in 1833. It has continued and exists down to the present day. Each year, the order takes in 
15 men, senior students from Yale University. Never more than 15, only once has it been less than 15. In 1946, they took in, I think, 10 rather than 15 members. So what we have is a secret society which, over the last 150 years, has accumulated about 2,500 members, of whom perhaps 500 are alive today. Of this 500, perhaps 100 are actively in pursuit of the objectives of the order. It's not another college fraternal society. Yale University is the only university in the United States, or indeed the world, which has senior societies. These are societies where the 15 are selected in the junior year and actually are initiated at the beginning of the senior year. They stay on campus only one year as members. They are called knights. When they graduate, they leave the university, they go out into the world, then they're known as patriarchs. So at any one time, you only have 15 knights in existence, and um, for the rest of their lives, they're known as patriarchs. And they work uh, during their lifetime, or a number do, uh, towards the ends of the order. They are pretty much guaranteed success, certainly they're guaranteed financial success, and in my reading of the material I have, I uh, infer that so long as they go along with the purposes of the order, so long as they uh, gear their careers and their lives towards certain ends, then they are guaranteed success. How did I come to this knowledge? Well, up to six months ago, I denied that there was a conspiracy, because, frankly, I couldn't prove one. I suspected a conspiracy, but I couldn't prove there was one until six months ago. Well, a little before six months ago, um, I received the catalog, which is the membership list of the society, all the way back to 1833, and I received some of their internal documents, enough for me to put together the way they correspond with each other, the um, operations within the order, to some extent their problems, and to some extent their objectives. Now this is the book, An Introduction to the Order, by Anthony C. Sutton. It has a skull and bones on the front and 322. The 322 is an identification. The um, order has a temple on the Yale campus. A Within, temple? A temple, yes. It's a building maybe this 50, 60 feet by 40 feet, maybe 40 feet high. There's no windows, two big steel doors. We know what the temple looks like because back in 1880s uh, a number of Yale students became a little unhappy about what was going on inside this temple. Only when they went by it at midnight sometimes they heard strange noises and all kinds of rumors on the Yale campus as to what this might be. There was a break-in. I call it the Yale Gate. Um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a break-in to the temple and the students who broke in uh, cataloged what they found and they made a, um, a drawing, a design of the interior of the temple. 
and uh, three of the rooms are numbered. One is 322, one is 323, and one is 324. Uh, 322 is also, I suspect, the chapter number. Uh, and also in correspondence between members, they conclude their correspondence, where you and I would conclude yours truly or yours sincerely, they conclude yours in 322. Why 322? There are several theories for this. One is that the order um, originated with Demosthenes, the Greek, in 322 BC. That's one theory. Another one is that it stems from the founding date in the United States, which was 1832. So really we have um, the last two numbers, 32, the second chapter of, founded in 1832. The skull and crossbones are prominent in their, in their um, ceremonies, initiation ceremonies. This is a symbol of death. Now why would they take a symbol of death? Yes, from what I understand, when a new member is initiated, that would be in the senior year at Yale, he's placed within a coffin. Oh my. And uh, <laughs> now we only know this from the Yalegate papers, these I call it Yalegate. Um, and from the photographs we have of members inside the temple, um, many of these photographs are the 15 sitting around a table and they have this skull and the crossbones sitting on the table in front of them. It is the symbol of death and it has been called the Brotherhood of Death and I think it. it probably more adequately should be called the Brotherhood of Death. So what I've had to do is look at the history, the biographies of the leading members of the order and reconstruct their career and see if there's a common pattern in their careers. Uh, while doing that, I came across some interesting documents. Some members apparently are not too happy once they become involved with this after 10 or 20 years. One member in particular left a memorandum. He wrote it in 1932. He was buried away in his papers. I don't think anybody uh, found it before I did. And it was a six-page memorandum on the order, naming some of the members and said it was the most sordid thing that ever happened in the history of man. So, but to come back to my point, I have to reconstruct the objectives. What are the objectives? In the words of one member, might is right. If you have the power, you use it to achieve your objectives. What is the objective? As you look at the histories of individual members, it can only be one thing. To acquire power, to keep power, to use power for their own purposes. Fascinating material, to say the least. And to those who have not yet done so, I would exhort you to go out and read a copy of America's Secret Establishment by Antony Sudden, which was probably the first and most definitive work on the order, although other books have been written since then. Of course, you can also find the link to that video of that interview, uh, which continues in parts 2, 3, and 4, in the documentation section for today's episode on CorbettReport.com, as well, of course, as links to all of the other articles, videos, and links that we cite in today's episode. And there you'll be able to hear Anthony Sudden expound at greater length about the order and its objectives. But why don't we do some digging on our own? 
if indeed the objective of the order is to accrue power for the sake of power and that might is right, it still begs the question of how is this power wielded? Well, some of that can be seen from the biographical details we can find of some of the past members of this secret society. There are some highly interesting things that this group, which has been around for 170 or so years, and includes less than 3,000 people in that entire almost two-century existence, yet these people, as I say, have gone on to incredible heights of success in their careers. Well, for example, who? Well, let's take a look at UNESCO, UNESCO UNESCO.org where you can find a link talking about the American poet and statesman Archibald McLeish, also a skull and bonesman, who was not only the first American member of UNESCO's executive board, but also a key member in drafting the constitution of UNESCO. And to longtime listeners of the Corbett Report, you will not need to be told how that is a nefarious and dubious honor, to say the least. Another example is Morrison Remick Waite. He became a Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, and during the Santa Clara County v. Southern Pacific Railroad Company hearing, he made a comment, an oral comment, which made its way into the law books. Quote, The court does not wish to hear argument on the question whether the provision in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution which forbids a state to deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, applies to these corporations. We are all of the opinion that it does. End quote. And the fact that that comment was added to the headnotes of the printed case summary, thereby enshrined in U.S. jurisprudence the fact that corporations are persons. That's right, skull and bones, making sure that corporations count as persons in in the U.S. legal system. More to the point, the founder of Skull and Bones, General William Russell, had a very interesting past, and I'll put in a link to ctrl.org, where you can read an article under the headline Boodle Boys, which talks about the following, quote, William H. Russell, Skull and Bones co-founder 1833, cousin Samuel Russell, formally established Russell & Co. on January 1st, 1824 for the purpose of acquiring opium and smuggling it to China. Russell & Co. merged with the number one U.S. trader, the J&TH Perkins Boston Concern, in 1829. By the mid-1830s, the opium trade had become the largest commerce of its time in any single commodity, anywhere in the world. Russell & Co. and the Scotch firm Jardine Matheson, then the world's largest opium dealer, working together were known as the Combination. End quote. Now that article in itself goes on in much greater detail about the founder, William Russell, and his role in the opium trade. But moving right along, I'll also include a link to subgenius.com that talks about Skull and Bones and Bush, and shows how Bonesman George H.W. Bush was, of course, just continuing the Skull and Bones-China opium connections when he became deeply involved in American policy in China. Quote, George Bush, the first U.S. diplomatic representative to the People's Republic of China back in 1973, was a member of Skull and Bones. So were his father, brother, son, uncle, nephew, and several cousins. 
Winston Lord, the Reagan-Bush administration ambassador to China, was a member. So were his father and several other relatives. James Lilly, the current ambassador to China, was a member of Skull and Bones, as was his brother. Except during the Carter administration, every U.S. ambassador to Beijing since Kissinger's deal with Mao Zedong was a member of the same tiny Yale cult. A mere coincidence? Mao was a Yaley. Back in 1903, Yale Divinity School established a number of schools and hospitals throughout China that were collectively known as Yale in China. It has since been shown that Yale in China was an intelligence network whose purpose was to destroy the Republican movement of Sun Yat-sen on behalf of the Anglo-American establishment. The Anglo-American establishment hated Sun because he wanted to develop China. On the other hand, they loved the Chinese communists because they intended to keep China backward and were committed to growing dope. One of Yale in China's most important students was Mao Zedong. During World War II, Yale in China was a primary instrument used by the U.S. establishment and its Office of Strategic Services, OSS, to install the Maoists into power. Yale in China was run by OSS operative Reuben Holden, the husband of Bush's cousin, and also a member of Skull and Bones. The Maoists made China into the world's largest opium producer. Yale in China was also closely associated with the New York-based Union Theological Seminary, which had been a center for U.S. subversion of Asia, literal wolves in sheep clothing, Branton. Every prominent radical leader operating in Korea today, for example, was trained at Union Theological. Union Theological was dominated for 20 years by Henry Sloan Coffin, a U.S. intelligence executive from the Sloan and Coffin families. He was a Skull and Bones member, as were a dozen of his relatives. Nor should it be forgotten that Avril Harriman, the former ambassador to Moscow, who did so much to build up the Soviet Union, was a member of Skull and Bones. Harriman was also a business partner of Prescott Bush Sr., the father of Maoist enthusiast George H.W. Bush. End quote. Now, speaking, of course, of George H.W. Bush's penchant for drug running, of course, during the, his time in the White House, he was the point man in the White House for the entire Iran-Contra scandal, at the self-same time that he was heading the War on Drugs nudge nudge wink wink well let's turn to ctrl.org for a little bit more on that from a section of an essay about skull and bones under the title the war on drugs an intellectual fraud quote before the vietnam war the golden triangle was run by french intelligence and corsican mobsters after the french bailed out and america moved in the triangle was run by U.S. intelligence with aid from Sicilian mobsters. This narcotics network is well documented in The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia by Alfred McCoy, The Great Heroin Coup by Henrik Kruger, and Double Cross by Sam and Chuck Giancana. Vice President George Bush, as chairman of President Reagan's cabinet-level working group and as director of the National Narcotics Interdiction System, was the highest U.S. governmental official involved in the war on drugs. Francis Mullen Jr., former head of the Drug Enforcement Agency, called Bush's efforts an intellectual fraud and a liability rather than an asset. 
Soon after these statements, Mullen resigned and the resultant General Accounting Office report was buried. In July 1985, the suppressed GAO paper reported that there were no benefits from the National Narcotics Border Interdiction System directed by George Bush. In fact, the overall effect was to encourage supply. End quote. So, Bonesman George H.W. Bush, continuing in the Bonesman drug trafficking tradition, and aided by his fellow Bonesmen, managed to install Yale in China student Mao Zedong in power as head of China, and Mao Zedong, of course, turned around and made China an opium powerhouse. George H.W. Bush goes on to fight the phony war on drugs, which actually increases and encourages the supply of drugs entering the U.S., and at the same time runs the Iran-Contra scandal, which of course helps to bring drugs into the U.S. via the CIA, and of course MENA Arkansas. Now, the MENA Arkansas drug-running operation was covered up by Governor Bill Clinton, as we found out way back in episode 19 of this podcast. But who was the one who really put the limited hangout of Iran-Contra out there so that none of the truly damaging details could ever surface to defeat Bonesman Bush? Well, it was Bonesman John Kerry. Yes, John Kerry ran the committee, which actually found the U.S. Department of State had actually played a hand in aiding the drug traffickers. His subcommittee report was released on April 13, 1989, and duly buried in the back pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times, receiving a scant few hundred words of coverage. As a limited hangout, it was an incredible success, having proven U.S. government involvement in drug trafficking, which was later further corroborated by a CIA internal investigation, which again found the CIA had been involved in drug running into the United States, and all of this information relegated to the back page of the newspapers for one day. Looks like Bonesman Carey did his work very well. Now, if all of that isn't enough to give a sense of how the Skull and Bones fraternity works together in coordinated actions to further a single agenda, perhaps this excerpt from the must-see documentary JFK 2, The Bush Connection, can help shed light on how Skull and Bones rolls. But at the center of Bush's connections in the world of secret murder and filth is his membership in the secret society of Skull and Bones, a secret Yale fraternity famous for its celebration of racism, robbery, and death. This tomb is where they meet twice a week to engage in black rituals using skulls, candles, and ceremonial group masturbation. It's supposed to be kind of a gay group marriage thing. Brothers under the skin is how the Bonesmen describe their relationship. Their graduates are a powerful bunch of devils. Averill Harriman and Prescott Bush were Bonesmen. George Herbert Walker Bush was a Bonesman, and so was his uncle, George Herbert Walker. Robert Lovett architect of the CIA, was a bonesman, selected for membership by Prescott himself. F. Truby Davison was also selected for membership in Skull and Bones in 1918, the year Prescott did the picking. Davison was in charge of hiring for the CIA in 1948, the year George Herbert Walker Bush left Yale in search of a job. Davison had a son, 
Endicott Peabody Davison. Endicott was skull and bones, class of 48, making him brother under the skin with George Herbert Walker Bush. He's also the Bush family lawyer. As both former president and director of CIA, old Beelzebub himself, George Herbert Walker Bush is the most distinguished of modern bonesmen. But the question is whether he was in the CIA in 1963, as Hoover says. In a world where personal connection is everything, no one could possibly have a closer relationship to the head of hiring for CIA than George Herbert Walker Bush. Bush's first job on leaving Skull and Bones was to work for Neil Mallon, brother under the skin to Prescott, class of 18. In a letter to White House aide C.D. Jackson, dated March 26, 1953, the now Senator Prescott Bush described Neil Mallon as a very old and dear friend. I might say that Neil Mallon is well known to Alan Dulles and has tried to be helpful to him in the CIA, especially in the procurement of individuals to serve in that important agency. So George went directly from Skull and Bones he went directly from being a brother under the skin to the son of the director of hiring for CIA to working for a recruiter for the CIA. You could not ask for more powerful evidence that Bush was in the CIA when Hoover said he was. But you can get it. Now, that clip was a bit fast-moving and, of course, relied on different parts of the documentary and different things which... I did not include in that excerpt, so once again, I'd like you to go and watch the documentary in its entirety so you can make sense of what's happening there. But I think that at least conveys the impression that bonesmen stick together and that the bonesmen who were heavily involved in the founding and creation and setting up and running of the CIA helped George H.W. Bush every step of the way. Of course, this also connects to the Brown Brothers Harriman Union Banking Corporation and their funding of Adolf Hitler through Fritz Thiessen. But again, that's covered elsewhere in the JFK 2 movie, and I would suggest people watch it. But yes, you did hear correctly about the bizarre initiation rituals of Skull and Bones, and yes, it is time to get into the more prurient aspects of this, because I think everyone is interested in what goes on in the tomb, Skull and Bones' secret temple on the grounds of Yale, which consists of an intimidating, squat, windowless building, the main door of which, apparently, is not allowed to be opened in the presence of barbarians, which is to say anyone who is not a bonesman. Now, necessarily, information about the initiation is somewhat based on conjecture, somewhat based on the reports of people who have gone through this experience, somewhat based on second-hand accounts from people who know the initiates, and somewhat based on some video evidence of the bizarre occultic ritual which was filmed several years ago from a vantage point on the Yale campus that could see into the Bonesman's courtyard. And unfortunately that doesn't translate very well into audio, so I will paste a, a link to that video footage in the documentation list for today's episode at CorbettReport.com. But right now I'd like to introduce a little bit from a 1977 Esquire magazine article which laid bare some of the secrets of the Skull and Bones Society by Ron Rosenbaum, who did some research into the organization and the ceremonies that go on in the tomb. And in this excerpt from this article by Ron Rosenbaum that I'm going to be reading to you, 
where he's imagining from the various evidence he's pieced together through his many interviews and research on the subject what is happening to the new initiates. Quote, Now I am trying to piece together what I know about what is happening to that initiate tonight and, more generally, how his life will change now that he has been admitted inside. Tonight he will die to the world and be born again into the Order, as he will thenceforth refer to it. The Order is a world unto itself in which he will have a new name and fourteen new blood brothers also with new names. The death of the initiate will be as frightful as the liberal use of human skeletons and ritual psychology can make it. Whether it's accompanied by physical beatings or wrestling or a plunge into a mud or dung pile, I have not been able to verify, but I'd give a marginally higher reliability rating to the mud pile plunge. Then it's into the coffin and off on a symbolic journey through the underworld to rebirth which takes place in room number 322. There, the Order clothes the newborn knight in its own special garments, implying that henceforth he will tailor himself to the Order's mission. Which is, if you take it at face value, to produce an alliance of good men. The Latin for good men is boni, of course, and each piece of bones literature sports a Latin maxim use of boni. Good men are rare, is the way one maxim translates. Of all societies, none is more glorious nor of greater strength than when good men of similar morals are joined in intimacy, proclaims another. End quote. Elsewhere in the article, Rosenbaum addresses the issue of the autobiographical sessions which all of the bonesmen go through, in which they get naked, lie in coffins, and confess their sexual histories to, the, to their fellow bonesmen. And he ties it into the idea of an elite bloodline and eugenics. Quote, Of course, if the initiate has grown up in a bones family and gone to picnics on the island all his life, the vision the introduction to powerful people, the fine manners, the strong bonds, is less awesome. But to the non-hereditary slots in a Bones class of 15, the outsiders, frequently the football captain, the editor of the Yale Daily News, a brilliant scholar, a charismatic student politician, the island experience comes as a deductive revelation. These powerful people want me, want my talents, my services. Perhaps they even want my genes play along with their rules, and I can become one of them. They want me to become one of them. In fact, one could make a half-serious case that functionally Bones serves as a kind of ongoing, informal establishment eugenics project, bringing vigorous new genes into the bloodlines of the Stimsonian elite. Perhaps that explains the origins of the sexual autobiography. It may have served some eugenic purpose in General Russell's vision, a sharing of birth control and self-control methods to minimize the chance of a good man and future steward of the ruling class being trapped into marriage by a fortune hunter or a working-class girl, the way the grand tour for an upper-class American youth always included an initiation into the secrets of Parisian courtesans so that once back home, the young man wouldn't elope with the first girl who let him get past second base. End quote. Again, you can read much more elsewhere online about the bizarre occultic initiation ceremonies of the Skull and Bones Order. But, of course, as many in the corporate-controlled media will tell you, 
it's all just a big drunken frat party of very little significance. Right, Keith Olbermann? And if we broke into that place on High Street in New Haven, Connecticut, we would see what? Oh, Something gosh. that looked like a Harry Potter adventure ride at an amusement park? Something like that. You'd see dozens of skulls, skeletons, art celebrating death, war memorabilia, and several allegedly stolen items that Bonesmen uh, supposedly were supposed to take um, as gifts to the society's goddess. I am not making this up. <laughs> and uh, what happened to her? Well, according to Skull and Bones legend in 322 BC, which is why you see the number 322 associated with bones, the Greek orator, orator Demosthenes died. When he died, the goddess Eulogia, whom Skull and Bones calls the goddess of eloquence, arose to the heavens, and she didn't happen to come back down again until 1832 when Russell formed Skull and Bones. So now everything in the society is done in deference to this goddess. They have sacred anthems to her, they have a shrine to her, and they're supposedly um, encouraged to go steal things and bring them back to her in the tomb. Now I get it. <laughs> at, at, at Cornell, we just stole things for the hell of it. Uh, Alexandra Robbins, author of Secrets. <laughs> oh, you know those Yaleys with their hocus-pocus and mumbo-jumbo. Oh, they're so pretentious. But then again, frat boys will be frat boys, am I right? Well, perhaps this isn't so funny to people like the descendants of Geronimo. From BBC News, 22nd of June 2009, U.S. seeks to stop Geronimo lawsuit. Quote, U.S. officials are seeking the dismissal of a lawsuit brought against the government by descendants of Apache leader Geronimo to recover his remains. The descendants want to rebury Geronimo, who was buried in Oklahoma in 1909, in his native land in New Mexico. They are also seeking the return of body parts they say were stolen in 1918 or 1919 by a secret society at Yale University known as Skull and Bones. But justice officials say the law cited by the plaintiffs is not applicable. End quote. And certainly the Bonesmen themselves do seem to take it all very seriously. If you're to raise the subject of skull and bones with a bonesman, on the phone for instance, you'll probably receive this treatment. We met a wall of secrecy when we called past members to uncover the story of skull and bones. Many tried to deny all knowledge of the private club formed in 1832. Uh, I, I, I'm not, uh, I don't have a comment on that. Our membership is, uh, is private. Membership is private, and I really can't tell you whether I am or I'm not. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. If, however, you're brave enough to confront a Skull and Bones member about his membership at, say, an interview Q&A time after a public engagement, like, say, Senator John Kerry, with a question like this... Were you a member of Skull and Bones in college and Bush? Were you in the same secret society... You will probably receive this treatment. I didn't do anything! Don't taste me, bro! Don't taste me! I can't do it! Of course, the corporate-controlled media will always continue to laugh at the suggestion that there could be anything behind these types of rituals involving stolen human skulls, 
Nazi death head emblems, neophytes being forced to kiss human skulls and enact their own death, all in the name of good fun, I'm sure, in the exact same way that they'll continue to always dismiss Bohemian Grove as just a big drunken frat party for the apparently homosexuals in the Republican Party who like to pass anti-homosexual legislation, and of course, soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor's membership in Belizean Grove, which of course was mocked by Stephen Colbert, as usual. Of course, that's despite the fact that people like German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt wrote in his own autobiography, Men and Powers, a political retrospective about how great the Bohemian Grove is and how it's so much more conducive to rituals than the German groves. And of course, we can dismiss out of hand Tony and Cherie Blair's odd penchant for Aztec rebirthing rituals where they're half-naked in mud baths, chanting to the four winds, as reported in the Edmonton Journal in 2001. And we can dismiss the fact that Ronald Reagan ran the White House for several years based largely on astrology, even choosing when and where to hold American-Soviet summits and the precise timing at which to begin news conferences based on his astrologers' recommendations. We can dismiss the fact that Stephen Harper, the Canadian Prime Minister, has a psychic-slash-hairstylist on his payroll, and the Canadian taxpayers get to pay for his psychic. And we can, of course, dismiss the fact that Obama carries around a small gold statue of the Monkey King, Hanuman, in his pocket, because all of these things are of no significance because our leaders tell us that they are Christians, so obviously that must be their religious belief and practice. And all of these symbols and all of these rituals and all of these things that they secretly engage in behind closed doors, which are exposed in the mainstream-controlled corporate media, can easily be dismissed because it's of no significance. Well, I'll let my listeners take a look at the links in the documentation section to all of those topics and do that research for themselves and come to their own conclusions about whether or not our fearless politicians and leaders really are religious, and if so, what religion they really do practice. But even without taking that into consideration, there is something fundamentally disturbing about the way in which secret societies, such as Skull and Bones, can function to undermine a free and open society. Now, Anthony Sutton describes this extremely well in his seminal work, America's Secret Establishment, where he talks at great length about the Hegelian dialectic and how members of secret societies can puppeteer what we are seeing from behind the scenes, holding up both the Bolshevik left and the fascist right as nothing more than marionettes on strings, which they use to create a political theater to keep us distracted from the fact that they are the ones behind both forces. Now, of course, this is something that we've fleshed out in so many ways through so many different pieces of data along the way through all of the episodes of the Corbett Report that it would be impossible to sum it up here in just a few words. But, of course, another incredibly important piece of that puzzle comes from Norman Dodd and the Reese Commission, which we've featured in a previous episode of this podcast, which, of course, discovered that the main robber baron foundations, like the Carnegie's, were talking in the early part of this century about how to create wars in order to shape 
and mold society in the ways that they want. Once again, this is problem-reaction-solution, and this formula only works because the people who are actually creating the problems are able to disguise their part in creating those problems. And of course, one of the linchpins to the entire political theater that stops people from peeking behind the curtain and finding out what's really taking place in the real political world behind the one that we're exposed to in the corporate-controlled media are the secret societies, secret oaths, secret bonds, secret alliances, which go so far to explaining what's really happening in the world. Of course, one almost doesn't need to be shown exactly how Skull and Bones was used as the foundation of the CIA, although it can and has been shown by researchers like Anthony Sutton and Chris Milligan, because it's self-evident that intelligence agencies could be nothing more than an outgrowth of secret societies. It's the type of organization where even to confirm that you are in the organization goes against the very fundamental tenets of that organization, and of course it relies on very close relations among very few people who you trust with your life, and of course who you devote your lifelong allegiance to, despite the seemingly divergent paths you might take in life, like John Kerry and George W. Bush. Once again, there is a mass of information on this subject, which, again, I will leave you to start exploring for yourself, just as I leave you to contemplate the purpose and function of secret societies and secret oaths in a supposedly free and democratic system of government. But today I will leave you with a very good articulation of exactly what it is we are opposed to and why we are opposed to it, by the last real president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for this week's edition of the Corbett Report podcast and asking you to tune in next week for episode 94 of the Corbett Report, You Are Being Sterilized. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, 
to cover up our mistakes or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people, for I have complete confidence and the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. There's a ghost in the White House dropping great big bombs. There's a ghost in the White House just can't get along. There's a ghost in the White House and I wish that he was gone. There's a ghost in the White House nothing but skull and bone. This is an echo song. Skull and bone, skull and bone There's a ghost in the White House Nothing but skull and bones There's a ghost in my TV Haunting my house There's a ghost in my TV Said my cat thinks it's a mouse There's a ghost on the evening news Filling us with lies there's a ghost in my TV, nothing but skull and bones. Skull and bones, skull and bones. There's a ghost in my TV set, nothing but skull and bones. And then one of the most disturbing things is that the family groups have been involved in uh, drug running since the early 1800s. Drug running? And it seemed... Yes, yes. The, the founder of Skull and Bones was uh, William Huntington Russell, and his family business was a Russell and Company, which was the uh, America's largest opium smuggler, the third largest in the world. Wow. Chris Milligan, unfortunately, we are out of time. We're going to have to leave it at that fascinating subject. The author of a book.